welcome again to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and this is our virtual church classroom where we study scripture and doctrine and the traditions of the church in order to more adequately know the heart and mind of our God and to more completely have our hearts and minds transformed by God's presence. It is a study we call Christian Believer. It's based on the uh, course of study created by J. Ellsworth Callis, published by Cokesbury. We're doing a very loose interpretation of it, but nevertheless, we're making our way through the doctrines of the church as they are outlined in the Nicene Creed. We're in Lesson 9 this week, and Lesson 9 is entitled, The Trouble We're In, or What is the Doctrine of Sin Anyway? And so this is what we do each week as we get together, as we study together and learn together. And I invite you now to get your minds and your hearts ready to be transformed by the Spirit of God as we seek to know God's understanding and uh, response to our sin. But first, a couple of quick prayer concerns and announcements. Now, if you've been watching the news, I'm sure, and uh, perhaps reading it on the internet or listening to your radio, you're aware that we are experiencing a lot of hurricane-related uh, issues here in North America right now. Uh, people in Texas and Louisiana and all along the Gulf Coast are recovering from Hurricane Harvey and the incredible amounts of rain that fell and the vast flooding that occurred. and also uh, people in Florida and people in uh, Puerto Rico and places out to the uh, south and east of uh, Florida are bracing right this moment as I record this for one of the most powerful hurricanes in recent history, possibly even becoming a stronger hurricane than has been uh, allowed for in the scale that they use to register these things. So, uh, in other words, there's a possibility this Category 5 hurricane may grow beyond whatever Category 5 really represents. So, it's a time for us to pray together. It's a time when some Christians are convinced that we're seeing signs of the soon return of Christ, and it's a time when, whether or not that's the case, many will suffer. And so for those of us who are comfortable and safe and dry and have all that we need right now and who are not being uh, having our lives disrupted by these phenomenon of the weather that create such pain and chaos, uh, let us at least be preparing ourselves to serve those who are in need when the time comes. Let us begin our prayers even now for all of them and let us call upon the Lord who can say in a word to stop in the face of the hurricane and it will stop. Let us call upon the Lord together because our brothers and sisters in Christ and those souls for whom Christ died uh, are out there suffering or being troubled in some way, maybe really big way, by this storm. Let's pray. Let us pray for those who will sacrifice much in order to help them in their time of trouble to go into harm's way for their sake. Pray with me for all of those people, for all of those circumstances, but pray the Lord will intervene 
as only the Lord can. And if indeed these are the signs of Christ's soon return, then join me in praying Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But just a moment, there's another one that can be saved. Now, as we begin our study together on sin, <clears throat> I'd ask you to just keep in mind uh, that the fundamental premise of this lesson is outlined in the scriptures that you read. And so I just want to ask you to think about it for a moment. Um, sin is uh, a word that we don't even like to talk about in our times because people get very... Uh, touchy about being judged you know you hear someone say all the time one you know when you start looking at how other people in in our our communities who are not favorably disposed to christianity when you look at how they respond to uh, our calls to faith and our our earnest desire that they might join us in serving the Lord Jesus, most of them are pretty prone to responding to us that we're judgmental. You know, don't judge me. Well, you are those people who think that that a person can't live however they want to. They can't be the kind of person they feel like they were designed to be, you know, and, and they immediately draw upon some of the ugliest examples of Christianity that they've seen and assume that we're all that way and that this judgment that we place upon them is our own. And it's true that when we speak of God's grace, we cannot adequately express it without speaking of the nature of sin. You can't really tell someone that they need a savior unless they are convinced that they are in such trouble that they must be saved. You know, in these hurricane storms that are coming one after another, there are always stories of that person who said, I'll just ride it out. You know, there's always that story of the one who's just going to ride it out. And then we find out that they died or we find that they are standing on the very last a bit of their home that's above the water waiting for the helicopter or the boat to rescue them because they didn't heed the warning when they had the chance to do something about it. And this is certainly a great way to understand how Christianity is uh, experienced by people in our communities. There are so many people who have given such poor impressions of what Christianity is all about and the nature of our salvation, that when the real truth is placed before them, they're skeptical. And in the same way, some are just stubborn. You know, as we talked about not long ago, uh, John Calvin would have said that, uh, that some people don't get it because they were predestined not to get it. I would say that isn't the case, and I would uh, agree with our Methodist founder, Wesley, in saying that it isn't that some people aren't destined to get it, it's just that some people don't. Some people's will is so stubborn and so unwilling to bend, and, and uh, some people are just so committed to their way of thinking and their way of sin that they can't allow themselves to be changed. They can't imagine having their mind changed. And these are people who may very well stand before the Lord God on Judgment Day and even then spit in God's eye. It's scary to think about, and yet 
it is almost certain to be true because as surely as there is someone who is going to ride out the storm when Irma strikes, when Jose strikes, when Harvey struck, there will be those who will be convinced right up until they're looking into the eyes of their creator that it's all a lie and that they won't be judged. You know, the old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. You know, great song, terrible message, because if you are so committed to doing it your way, you are in danger of being left out of the glory of God's grace. So what is sin then? What is it to have sinned against God? What does it mean? The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. Well, <laughs> there's the whole doctrine of sin encapsulized in a few verses. Sin is that bent towards resisting God's will in favor of our own. We are people who would uh, choose not to exercise the free will that God gave us in accepting the God who gave it to us. Or to put it another way, God gave us the opportunity to think and create and be like God, made in God's image, in such a way that we can actually choose to reject the Creator. It's kind of creepy. This is a type of sin that we refer to as original sin. It's the, the, the natural bent desire that we have to resist God and to resist God's will. In Scripture, it is said that we got this from the sin of Adam. Do you remember when you read Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17? You heard as uh, God had given them a strict commandment not to consume the fruit of the tree of the truth, of knowledge of truth, of good and evil, of life and death. And you remember in chapter 3 how they were tempted to disobey God and to go ahead and eat the fruit anyway? This is the story that most all of us know if we've been in any way experienced any kind of Christian upbringing. Even the most uh, incomplete Christian upbringing includes a story of Adam and Eve and the sin of disobeying God to eat the forbidden fruit. But there's so much more to that story, really, than what there appears to be. Um, surely the kind of people who have made a regular habit of listening to this podcast are not the sort that would assume that this is really about two little white people who run around naked frolicking in the Garden of Eden and uh, see a shiny ripe apple on a tree that God told them to stay away from and a snake slithers down the branches and says, oh, come on, you can eat it, it'll be okay. It's nice when we're children and we think this is how that story goes, but here's the adult version. We may not even be speaking of fruit. We may not even be speaking of snakes. But what we are speaking of is a place where God's chief creation, humanity, dwelt in the presence of God. 
we're talking about a place called Eden where there was paradise and where the man and the woman were in the presence of God. They could walk with God in the cool of the evening, Scripture says. And God had said to them, just take care of all of this and enjoy it. And uh, enjoy my friendship and my presence as your Heavenly Father. Let me be with you in all of this so that we can enjoy this together. But just keep in mind that, that there is one part of this that you must avoid. You must avoid that, uh, that place and that circumstance wherein your eyes will be opened to really understand the entirety of your human nature. And uh, you could say that God was, uh, was mistaken for even giving them an ability to see the entirety of their human nature. But I ask you this, if you were God and you wanted to create someone in your own image and you gave them the freedom to choose to trust you and obey you or not, then giving them the ultimate liberty, the ultimate freedom of choice to even accept the fullness of their humanity so that they might deny you would be the greatest test. In other words, God wants us to be like God. And one of God's great qualities that is, uh, was explained last week is that God is good all the time and that all the time God is good. And, and so by putting this temptation within their reach, and explaining to them that if they will embrace this temptation, they will see themselves in their complete self-awareness and they will recognize in themselves the ability to reject God and almost certainly choose to reject God. And so God gives them this opportunity and then gives them the choice knowing that for them to be truly like God, good all the time and all the time good, they must choose not to do that which God has forbidden. But they do, just as Lucifer, the fallen angel, did, just as the one they call Satan or Hosatan, the accuser, has done. And so this serpent, which is, uh, is described in, in Scripture in numerous places using a long, uh, old Hebrew word that basically describes a dragon, this dragon creature shows up in the garden and shows up again in Scripture later and uh, always described as this, this one thing that is like a dragon, but it is Satan the father of lies, the accuser, Hosatan, the accuser, the one who is always making a case against God and against, more than that, God's character, always trying to reveal that God isn't really good all the time and all the time good. And this seems to be Satan's obsession. And so Satan is always trying to prove that God isn't really good all the time, and that God isn't all the time good. And so sin entered the world because of Hosatan, the accuser, drawing people into doubt about the true goodness of God and the goodness of God's intentions. And this seals the deal. The first humans could have lived in ignorant bliss. And yet God, in love for what God has created, 
gives them the freedom to open up entirely and see it all. And then the danger of choosing to experiment with things better left alone. God gives them this and they choose the danger. They choose to reject God's good character and the always good character of God. This is how God is said to have cast them out of the Garden of Eden. And what's really remarkable is they were cast out of the Garden and there were seraphim uh, and cherubim, rather, who were placed at the gate. Now, the cherubim of Scripture are the big, bad heavyweights of the angelic forces. These are the guys who who uh, provide the brute force, you might say, against the enemy. And God places them at the gates to the place where God dwells, where humans once were able to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Is, is it because these puny little human beings need to be held back by these giant, uh, incredibly powerful, uh, angelic beings? No, not at all. It's because the dragon got in. And now the dragon will never get in. And so we see in this story an illustration, really. And, uh, I, you know, I'm one of those crazy people that actually thinks the Bible is literally true. And I may lose a few of you as friends because of this, but I do believe it's literally true. I don't believe that our limited human interpretation does the literal truth justice. And so, like I said a moment ago, I'm not talking about, you know, a couple of little white people walking around naked in the, in the garden. I'm talking about humanity in a very broad sense, and I'm talking about sin in a very broad sense. And uh, I believe the story is literally true. And I believe that the Hosatan is always out there pointing that long, bony finger of accusation. And wherever there is accusation, there is Satan. And so, sin is the accusation that God isn't good all the time, and that God is not all the time good. Well, I've done it again. I wanted to... Uh, say a few things about our lesson and then go into prayer, but then I got wound up. So, uh, you know what? It's time for us to pray together now, and uh, I just want to uh, take a moment to pray about what's already been said and then to ask God's favor as we move forward. So let's prepare our hearts for prayer with a moment of silence, and then I will say a few words on all of our behalf. Holy God, I thank you and I praise you for this opportunity that is so incredibly wonderful, this freedom to speak to one another in a manner of speaking. I guess I'm doing all the talking, but to be together in this particular way, to have this uh, chance to, to discuss together and think together the, about the doctrines, in this case, the doctrine of sin, my hope, Lord, is that as we pray together and prepare our hearts together, our hearts will be softened to really hear how our sin changes the relationship we have with you and with each other, and how the healing of our sin restores that relationship and our relationships with each other. I pray, Lord, that it 
will be your pleasure to speak through your servant and that despite my human weaknesses and the many flaws with this podcast, somehow you'll do something remarkable for your name's sake. This is my heart's desire, Lord. May you be glorified. Amen. Now, let's take a look at the trouble we're in. Did you see how in your scripture readings, the uh, problem of sin was dealt with through a series of laws and sacrificial offerings? Were you tempted to think that that's kind of barbaric? and that there doesn't seem to be any sense in killing animals and sprinkling their blood all over the place as some sort of offering for God's uh, 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 approval as some sort of uh, uh, remediation or something like that. I mean, you know, what does it mean exactly? Let's go back to that Genesis story again for a moment. Consider this, when they were cast out of the garden, they first were revealed to God in their sin because they felt naked and covered themselves with leaves. And then as they were cast out of the garden, God covered them with animal skins. Do you see how that little piece of information that they were covered in animal skins is evidence of the first sacrifice for the sake of sin because of sin? Do you understand that they lived in harmony with all the animals in the garden and that there was no bloodshed in the garden, but after they sinned, God covered them in the skins of an animal, which means that the animal was killed, its blood was shed, and its body was sacrificed for their covering, for the covering of their sin. Hear those words carefully because there is a a theological element there. There's a, a, a sin uh, explanation in that. And that is this understanding that, that when they were naked, they had no sin. They had nothing to hide. They felt completely free to be entirely exposed before the eyes of God. But when they had rejected God, when they had doubted God, they felt as though they needed to hide themselves from God. And so they covered themselves as best they could, but God saw through it, still saw their sin, and it was repulsive to God, so that God had to cast them out of God's presence. But before God let them go off into a world of toil and this constant battle with sin, God killed something and let its blood be shed so that their sin might be covered completely. And so it's through the shedding of blood that the sin is covered. And then we see in the earliest stories of Adam and Eve of how their two sons, the famous two, Cain and Abel, were at odds with each other because, uh, and they weren't really at odds with each other, but one was pretty upset because the other had uh, made a more appropriate sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood. And, uh, you know, that kind of indicates that there was a ongoing understanding that our sin is covered by shed blood and the flesh of the one who died. 
even when Noah got onto the ark, he carried two by two all the various animals of the world and saved them. But he also took some extra animals, and those animals were for sacrifices. And this was the understanding that he had been spared, but his worship still included acts of covering his sin. And what was the sin of a guy that, you know, was the only one righteous in God's sight? Well, if nothing else, his sin was to have at some point doubted God. Because we all doubt God. We all have our moments when we disrespect God's character. And this is repulsive to God. And so it has to be covered so that God might not look upon it. And uh, sure, I don't expect this to make a whole lot of sense if you're trying to make everything I say literal. But I believe that with a little bit of effort and a little bit of imagination and a whole lot of the Holy Spirit, you might be able to make some sense out of what I'm saying in your Christian context. Because, well, frankly, one of the things that we look for in Bible study, and in particular our understanding of, of Christian doctrine, is a lot of help from the Holy Spirit. And, and not because this is somehow, uh, you know, a ruse that uh, somehow you're trying to be brainwashed, you know. What it really means is, is that, that faith informs our knowledge and not so much knowledge informing our faith. St. Anselm had said this a long, long, long time ago. He had said, you know, I, I don't uh, seek knowledge in order to have faith. I have faith in order to seek knowledge. You know, in other words, you, you try to get to know this invisible God that you can't really see or touch or taste or feel in a certain way. Uh, in order to get to know that God, you have to first believe that that person is real even when everything in your senses would make you think otherwise. And that little bit of act of faith, that, that moment of, of just taking uh, God seriously begins to increase your faith and your knowledge and your awareness of God's nature. I mean, stop and think about it. Are you one of those people who, when you sit down to eat a meal, you always ask a blessing, you always say a little prayer, perhaps as your family sits down to the table, we always gather around the table and first begin by talking to God. It sounds wonderful. If you've grown up in church, it seems like an entirely appropriate thing to do. But I ask you, if you were talking to somebody who was from an entirely different society where this kind of behavior was completely unknown to them and uh, you you were ready to break bread with them and then you said oh wait before we eat we have to pray and then you all started talking to someone who wasn't there to this stranger this would seem ridiculous even absurd but to you it makes perfect sense because your faith has informed your knowledge and your knowledge tells you that you can talk to God and God will hear you. So I ask you, when you think about this situation of the trouble we're in, how do you interpret God's presence? Is it through faith informed by knowledge? Or is it knowledge that's informed by faith? Let's think about this for a moment as we try to wrap our minds around the uh, extent to which sin affects our lives. I want to share a reading with you from Reinhold Niebuhr. 
He's uh, a uh, theologian of the 20th century who uh, lived uh, until about 1971. He said, man is insecure and involved in natural contingency. He seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power, which overreaches the limits of human creatureliness. Man is ignorant and involved in the limitations of a finite mind, but he pretends that he is not limited. He assumes that he can gradually transcend finite limitations until his mind becomes identical with universal with the universal mind. All of his intellectual and cultural pursuits, therefore, become infected with the sin of pride. Man's pride and will to power disturb the harmony of creation. The Bible defines sin in both religious and moral terms. The religious dimension of sin is man's rebellion against God, his effort to usurp the place of God. The moral and social dimension of sin is injustice. The ego, which falsely makes itself the center of existence in its pride and will to power, inevitably subordinates other life to its will and thus does injustice to other life. Sometimes man seeks to solve the problem of the contradiction of finiteness and freedom not by seeking to hide his finiteness and comprehending the world into himself, but by seeking to hide his freedom and by losing himself in some aspect of the world's vitalities. In that case, his sin may be defined as sensuality rather than pride. Wow, what an excellent definition of the sin of humanity that is both spiritual and moral. And uh, morality, we would say, is a kind of understanding of the, the, uh, the, the way we humans get along. And so spiritual, in this case, would be a way of saying our sin against God, and then the moral would be our sins against each other. You know the Ten Commandments are basically five commandments told two different ways. They are about our sin against God, and about our sin against each other. The first five commandments are about our relationship with God, and the second of the ten, uh, five commandments, or the six through ten, are about our relationships with each other. And so, two tablets. One tablet representing our relationship with God, one tablet representing our relationship with each other. Sin is a twofold thing. It's about loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. So there's the essence of sin described in both spiritual and moral terms. When you do things that hurt other people, or as you just heard, oppress other people, you are committing moral sin. And the moral sin is no less than the uh, spiritual sin against God. It's really and a, a symptom of the spiritual sin. It's a symptom of our belief that somehow we're better than God and that God's intentions and God's will aren't that really that great and therefore uh, I can do it my way and uh, there may not be uh, any particular awareness that we are setting ourselves up for trouble but inevitably our relationships are afflicted by this. Our relationships with each other are afflicted by the relationship with God. 
that is not right. So how do we get out of the trouble we're in? Well, I guess you've noticed that each week somehow I always get the chance to tell you the gospel story. And this is, this is a pretty easy transition this week, I hope, at least for you, that uh, we might see how this shedding of blood and the covering of sin has been going on all along. In fact, up until the coming of Jesus Christ, this was routinely done in the temple through the sacrifices of the various animals. And uh, when God prescribed it, it was also made through the sacrifices of, of uh, the very life-giving food that we need in order to sustain our lives. The, the blood is life. And uh, to understand the true nature of the blood sacrifice, you have to understand the Jewish way of looking at blood. Um, this is why it's repulsive to Jews to eat anything that still has blood in it. This is why it's uh, uh, considered a bad thing to, to spill the blood of another person in such a way or another being. It's, uh, it's the idea that blood contains the very life energy of, of the person. And uh, there's a spiritual aspect to the way they interpret that. But really, who can deny that the blood that courses through our bodies isn't the life of our bodies because you know you cut open the arteries or the veins of the body and let the blood leak out and it won't be long before there's no life left in the body the blood is the life the blood in a few in human physiology is clearly the source of of the oxygen and energy that keeps our bodies going it is the system of uh, of uh, arteries and veins that provides the circulation of our blood so that it's constantly renewing our bodies even as our blood is renewed it's a remarkable system and the whole system is dependent upon the blood and so when something's blood is shed in order to protect or heal or save another, there is something truly sacred going on because the blood draining from one will bring death to it while it brings life to another. In the same way, the sin that, that covers uh, our, uh, or, our, or makes us repulsive in the presence of God is covered by the shedding of the blood and the the covering of the flesh. Think about the Exodus when the tenth plague was inflicted upon not only the people of Egypt but all of Israel as well. And the only thing that saved the people of Israel was whether they would be obedient to the requirement that God had given them in order that God's wrath might pass over them. And so on that evening of this great terrible plague of the death of the firstborn, the Israelites were instructed to kill an innocent and perfect lamb and to let its blood be drained and used to paint the doorposts of their homes and its body consumed by them so that its blood becomes a sign on the outside uh, of our dwelling that we have been uh, redeemed not because of our goodness or because of our particular uh, nature so that God doesn't need to execute God's wrath on us, but rather it's that blood that is the sign of our redemption, is a sign of our uh, 
release from the debt we owe God for our sin. And, and it is that body that provides the cover so that God can look upon our sin or really look upon us without seeing our sin. And so when we come to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what do we see? Well, we see the perfect son of God, this perfect lamb, born like no other person in all of human history, raised in sinless uh, commitment to the relationship with the Father, walking with the Father in the cool of the night, so to speak, even while in this wicked and corrupt creation that exists outside the place where God dwells. And this young and wonderful, perfect lamb is ultimately sacrificed and his blood drained his life's blood drained so that it might be the sign of our redemption or the passing over of God's wrath. His body, his broken body, becomes the covering in a manner of speaking that makes it so that God can look upon us and not see our sin. And so we literally believe that Jesus' death on the cross has provided the justification for God's grace toward us so that we might be covered by Christ so that God can look upon us and not see our sin. And what is our sin? Rejection of God. Rejection of God's goodness and good character and therefore choosing our own way which ultimately leads to pride and persecution and oppression and ignorance well, I hope this has been an opportunity for you to really dwell on the idea of sin and uh, more than that, to be set free, I hope. Uh, if you have, through this lesson, experienced a new perhaps life-changing understanding of the nature of sin and therefore the nature of your forgiveness, then I praise God with you and I wish you well. And I ask that you let us know if that's the case. But more than anything, I pray that as you consider the nature of sin, that you will begin to understand the great majestic love of our Creator and how wonderfully God has freed us from the consequences of our own rebellion against God. It is our pleasure each week to engage in this study, to really begin to, to uh, recognize God's presence in, in uh, the, the fundamental truths of Christianity. I hope that you are beginning to find yourself a little more articulate as you go about your day and you begin to try to witness your faith in the way that you present yourself to those around you. You know, you don't have to be a, an evangelist at work. In fact, it might even get you in a lot of trouble, but you can be different. You can be different. If you go to work or you go to uh, any place where you are seen outside of the church, then you can be a witness simply by being different in a very good way. Because you know what it means to reject God and you choose not to reject God. When you are confronted with all the scary things in the world, like hurricanes and floods, 
like sickness and disease in your response is without question god is good all the time and all the time god is good you're different and believe me some of the people you know will say it in not so kind terms but for now let's close with this prayer a hymn to god the father by john dunn wilt thou forgive that sin where i begun which in my sin, though it were not before, wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I have fear no more. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. But basically what John Dunn is saying is, is I keep sinning, Lord. I keep sinning. And were it not for the grace that covers my sin, you would see every ugly thing about me and be repulsed by it. Instead, you have, you have freed me to become better than I thought I could ever be because you've covered my sin with the love of Christ and the grace to remake me in your image. How wonderful our God is. Friends, I hope you will tune in again next time. There will be a one-week delay. Uh, in other words, this uh, next lesson on grace, which is uh, Lesson 10, will be about 10 to 12 days out rather than the usual 5 to 7 days. So uh, bear with me as uh, certain things will prevent me from being able to present you with this recording sooner than that. But uh, Rest assured that you remain in my thoughts and prayers, and I hope that I remain in yours. Continue to support this podcast by listening to it, sharing it with those you love. And, uh, you know, if you're in the neighborhood of Jasper, Indiana and Southwest Indiana, I hope you'll come and see us at Shiloh. And if you happen to come there for the first time and you want me to, t to hear about how you learned of this church and learned a little bit about me and my beliefs as you were uh, dialing into this podcast, I'd love for you to do that. If you're one of those folks that listens from far away, thank you. I'm honored, and I pray for you, and I ask that God watch over you and protect you. We love you, and we'll see you next time. God bless you. Goodbye.